0: The following podcast contains explicit language. By the way,
1: yes. I love
0: that y'all put me on that
1: list. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> no, that I, was the highlight of my life. I was like, what? Uh, the wait, movie that six people saw?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was funny because I, I actually did not see the movie until I was prepping to make the list because I'd heard I, so much about it. I remember it. you said that. yeah. And, and yeah. I was... Just blown away. I don't know that why it took weird. me so Somebody long. Somebody
1: on Twitter was hating too. I said, "Why are you hating?" Bro? Uh, I know. They put me on the list. Stop hating. I know. Just, just, just you know, celebrate something else. <laughs> you gotta, to hate the fact that I'm on the list. You know. Welcome, welcome, welcome
2: back to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and y'all. I'm particularly excited to share this week's episode with you. That voice you just heard at the top of the show is Barry Jenkins, and he's discussing the fact that earlier this year, my colleague Dan Kois and I included his first feature film, Medicine for Melancholy, on our list of the 50 best black films ever. And as you can see, he was super excited to be included on our list. Later on in the show, we have our full conversation in which we discuss his new feature film, Moonlight. It's a deeply gorgeous personal film that I'm looking forward to all of you seeing, and also really excited for you all to hear our conversation. But first, returning to the show, we've got my friend Antonia Sarahita. Woo! <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so glad you're back. Um, listeners, you may recall, she was our very first guest host on Represent, and we discussed Ghostbusters back when it came out. It feels so freaking long ago. Like,
0: Yeah, it does.
2: It was months ago. It was, like,
0: before the election was, like, in our, like, orbit. So that's really, like... Yeah. You know? It was before the Olympics. It was before, like, Trump
2: talked about grabbing people by the pussy. Like... (laughs) So much has happened. Um, So, yeah. And also now, like when I think when you were first on, you were still at Another Round, uh, the podcast, one of our favorite podcasts. But now you've moved and you're at Latino USA, right?
0: Yes. I'm at NPR's Latino USA. But as everyone will find out soon, we're talking about Jane the Virgin. And I was at Another Round when Jaime Camille was interviewed. Uh, I'm so jealous. Yeah. And so I have some some Rogelio insight, which I'm very excited to talk about. Oh, good. And of course, Rogelio, who is played by Jaime Camille, is Jane's dad in Jane the Virgin. And he's this big soap star.
2: Can you can you talk a little bit about like what it was like to be in the same room with him? He smells great. Mm. Um, what it did... Like- what like flowers or like honey,
0: like crisp, you know, like a like, an apple? like a, <laughs> yeah, sort. Of, I don't know, like a like a nice fall day or something like that. Okay.
2: (laughs) Nice. Um, Awesome. So I'm excited for you to share your Rogelio uh, insights as we talk about Jane the Virgin. So uh, for our listeners, Jane the Virgin just came back um, at the time of this recording uh, a week ago. And so now two episodes have aired of season three. And... I mean, so much has happened. I, I think so the, the premiere episode of this season, it was like a two-minute long recap of the what everything that happened before. <laughs> and that's longer than usual. They're usually around, like, I'd say a minute. So it's like double the time. And, of course, we had the lovely narrator uh, providing all the great commentary on what happened before we get to season three.
1: Finally. Welcome back. Let's review, shall we? This is Jane. You'll recall she was accidentally inseminated by Raphael Sperm. This is their baby Mateo. Adorable, right? And this is Detective Michael Cordero Jr. And after a lot of back and forth, and back again, well, Jane and Michael finally got married.
2: I pronounce you husband and wife. Yay, finally, she's chosen Michael. On the other end of things, Zayamara, uh, her mother, and Rogelio, her father, uh, broke up because uh, Zayamara doesn't want to have kids. She's very adamant about it, and Rogelio really wants more kids. So they broke up because of that. And then Zayamara slept with Rogelio's nemesis, telenovela star Esteban, uh, and she finds out she's pregnant. Uh what else happened? Michael's partner, so Michael, Jane's husband. Oh, I'm
0: so excited to hear you explain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I still don't fully so his partner, Susanna, was revealed to be at the end of season two, actually Sinrostra slash Rose in disguise. And Sinrostra, do you wanna explain who she is? She's, she's she's like the main villain.
0: Yeah. I honestly I'm very confused. She was the wife of Raphael's Father. Father, Yes. And she was running a plastic surgery, an illegal plastic surgery ring in the hotel, the Marbella that they own.
2: And that was a ring to like uh, the plastic surgery ring was to like change people's uh, murderers and criminals faces so that they couldn't be recognized. Right. That's important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So she reveals that she's not actually Susanna. I don't even think it's clear. I don't think Susanna was ever actually a person. Uh, I think no, it, was it was always,
0: always Rose. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, it was always Rose. So she shoots Michael at the end of season two, um, right before, of course, Jane and him were going to finally have sex because... Jane is still a virgin. Uh, Hence the title. (sighs) Okay.
0: Uh, (laughs) You did it. uh, Yeah. They Uh, should hire you to be the
2: narrator. Oh, God. That was nearly not as fascinating as the way the narrator says it, but thank you. Uh, I really liked the premiere episode, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were on it. Um, Essentially, it picks up right where I left off. You see... Uh, Jane re- discovers that Michael has been shot outside of their hotel room and then rushes to rushes him to the hospital and then a lot of the action takes place in the hospital.
0: Okay, I was like not so hot on episode 1, but I have a fe- I have a theory of why you and I differ, mm-hmm. which is are you team Michael or are you team Raphael?
2: Good question. So, I think I originally was team Michael when the show first started. And then I was team Raphael. And for the last, pretty much since season two, I've been team Jane. Like, I don't really like her with either of them at this point.
0: Yeah, I feel that too. Neither is like the best option in the world. But I feel like... So all of the stuff with Michael, when you're already not rooting for her to be with Michael, is really annoying. Like, I'm like, all right, Michael, we get it. You were shot. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> so I'm it's guessing... like, deal with you. <laughs> so I'm guessing you're Team Raphael. I am, but okay. like, I'm also like a kind of like reluctant Team Raphael because it's not like he's like, you know, he's his pants are so tight, you
2: know, <laughs> they are so his not just his pants, his shirts. Like, I feel like he's going to just like. Going to pop. Yeah. <laughs> and it never does, and I'm just amazed. I'm like, well, "How is that happening?"
0: Yeah, uh, that's such a good point. Yeah, I, you know,
2: Raphael. I feel like he's he, he's he's genuinely. I I feel like they're both genuinely good guys, and and they both clearly want to please Jane, which is great. Mm-hmm. But I, Michael, just seems too. I don't know, boring for her for Jane, and then Raphael feels too smarmy in a way. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. Well,
0: so actually, so this is something that I think is really interesting. The show has dealt with like class issues in a way, you know, like in the whole part where Jane was worried about her son growing up really rich. I I thought those episodes were really interesting how they dealt with that.
2: Yeah, me too. But they
0: have not ever even though her choices was between like a Latino guy and a white guy, ever dealt with like the issue of race and dating which I think is really interesting. They've, yeah. like, avoided it, sort of. She's never said, like, I relate to Rafael, you know? Mm-hmm. And obviously part of that is because they have a very different background.
2: Yeah, no, that's 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 something I've thought about a bit, too, because I, I agree with you that the class issues have been really, really fascinating. Although I've noticed that in... And maybe, I guess, I was trying to sort of justify why this is the case, but I was kind of surprised that in these first couple of episodes, they also, like, the class thing, or at least the money issue hasn't really come up. Um, I would think, you know, when you have mounting hospital bills, (laughs) um, there would be a lot to consider. I mean, I guess since he was, he was, he's a cop, like, maybe he's covered, like, maybe it's fine. But then, like, I don't know, I would think you would maybe address that in some way. Because one of the things I thought was really astounding in the earlier seasons was the fact that we saw Jane riding the bus all the time. And, like, how often do we see characters riding the bus? Um, Or, like, worrying about how she's going to pay for school or how she's going to do this. And so, I mean, I think part of it was they wanted to really focus on the emotional aspect of all of this happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the first episode, and her dealing with, like, what am I going to do? We never discussed you know she, i think she says at one point you know we discuss you know how many kids we're going to have and where we're going to live but we never discussed what's going to happen if he you know he's shot and we have to figure out what to do like his spinal cord like uh, it, it, and so yeah i was i thought that was a little curious and i agree the the race to bring it back like the race thing is also interesting i mean it the the second episode from monday night this as of this recording monday monday night um, it sort of gets into maybe not a race thing, but a cultural thing with Rogelio and the fact that he wants to become a crossover star, I which I thought was that. interesting. Yeah. That was
0: so – that was a really sweet moment, and I thought that it was really beautifully done. Yeah. I mean, just to,
2: like – do you want to sort of explain what that moment was? Because I felt like it was sort of a surprise. Like I was expecting it to go one direction and then it went like a slightly different direction. And Like his reasoning for why he wanted to be a crossover star.
0: Yeah. So he so Rogelio wants really, really, really wants to be a crossover uh, star after he sees Esteban <laughs> in an English-language magazine and, like, what's in his merce is the <laughs> section of the magazine. It's really funny. And he has, like, a vegan smoothie. And Rogelio gets, like, really upset. He's like, if Esteban's being a crossover artist, I also want to be a crossover artist. I want to be bigger. Because obviously, you know, how many huge Latin stars from Mexico are there in the U.S.? Well, you go to Mexico and everyone there knows all of the famous Hollywood stars from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so you would assume that the reason Rogelio wants to cross over is just to have more fame. But then Xiomara asks him, you know, why is it that you want to do a crossover when you're already so successful in the world of telenovelas? And he goes, you know, my family's here. Jane's here. My grandson is here. You're here. And I want to feel the same sort of like connection to my work here as I do to my family here, because now I belong here, which I think was a really, really sweet sentiment. And also, I mean, in general, I think this show has been so lovely and touching on immigration politics. Yeah. I've never seen a, a a more natural version of that in media than Jane the Virgin. Yeah. So I give it major props.
2: Yeah. I mean, that moment was just so, so, so sweet. And, and it, especially in these times that we're, when we're dealing with all these things, I wouldn't say, I, Natural. I think in that sense, it was definitely natural. But I do think that the show and this isn't a a knock on the show at all. But I think it can also be very not subtle about it. In ways that I think like, in the moment, like I can understand, yeah, we need to be more forceful. Like then later on in the episode, Rogelio is shooting uh, a a scene. And (laughs) the scene is... It's obviously highly fictional where it's a bunch of people trying to decide what to put on the Statue of Liberty, like what the poem will be. (laughs) And so one of them is like, we can't put give me your tired and huddled and poor and blah, 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 because then that means everyone, everyone can come here. And Rogelio burst out into this monologue where he's he's just like, "I should, I deserve to be here, and like I, I want the the country, this country, to accept me for what I can bring to the country." And it was just such a, it was it's so like heavy handed, yeah, yeah, so heavy handed. But like, I think it also really worked because, a, I think sometimes art needs to be that heavy handed and political, especially at a t- like such a crucial time like this with the elections. And B, it fits within the world of Jane the Virgin because it's Rogelio, <laughs> and right, Rogelio's... he is
0: heavy-handed. He's, yeah. like outrageous. Right, that's that's what he does.
2: So I I thought that was a really
0: great moment. Like I think that they had a really difficult task, the makers yeah. of Jane the Virgin. And you know, I actually I didn't watch uh, Ugly Betty, so I can't really speak to to that. I mean, but taking a telenovela and then making it into a popular sitcom here is not has never been super successful to the to the degree that this one's been successful. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with like the warmth and the universality of it. But also I think it has to do with the real authenticity that comes from from Gina Rodriguez, honestly.
2: Oh, she's she's just so wonderful. And she takes a character who I could easily really despise and find incredibly irritating <laughs> and makes her so incredibly lovable and charming. So we obviously have to discuss before we wrap the the facts that the show is called Jane the Virgin and Jane is still a virgin. (laughs) But now she's married. And I how do I I've I felt conflicted about it because to some extent it's bothered me to the point where I like I feel as though they by putting so much emphasis on virginity, it it makes virginity seem way more. I don't know. Important important than, personally, I think it should be. Um, right. But then I, it, the show also balances it out because, I mean, we didn't even get to this part and we don't really have time to delve into it. But the fact that the show also does very well at handling the fact that Zayamara does not wait and doesn't judge her for that. And also in the end of the first episode, we realize she plans to have an abortion and abort the baby that she's expecting with Esteban. And she doesn't feel bad about it. So I think that's great. But the fact that, The show is now—so at the beginning of the second episode, we learned that Michael's surgery was a success, but now he has to wait several more weeks before he can actually have—they can actually have sex before he's well enough to do it, which I was (sighs) like— Okay. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I mean, I I expected, I guess, at this point, because they find every single possible way to keep her from having sex.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that they're milking this scenario for as long as they think they can. I think, again, it's this weird thing where they're putting so much emphasis on virginity, it almost feels like they're making it into a bigger deal than it needs to be. But at the same time, I think that they're just really hoping that we're all going to stick to our TVs until she finally does it
2: but like so if they do what does that mean like where do we go for the rest of the show yeah like will will? I mean I still plan to tune in but right you know so long as it stays interesting in other ways because honestly that's not even why I'm tuning in anymore like I'm not I'm not waiting for her to have sex like that that wasn't even really my thing to begin with so yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see whether, or like, what's happening if Jane really does lose her virginity. It could be the next episode or it could be, who knows? They. Might I don't do think it. it will be. I think it's yeah. going to
0: be the finale. Ugh, really? That's like 22 episodes more. That's so long. They're going to have like a million times where, like, they are about to, but then they don't. Yeah. Like, That's like so every
2: other episode of Jane the Virgin. They already do that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll wrap this up by doing our one of my favorite segments of the show, which is the plus or delta. And do you want to start with your plus and delta, Antonia?
0: Sure. So this weekend I saw the documentary 13 um, mm. and I also saw Jorge Ramos's documentary Hate Rising. And I just want to do like a shout out to like all of these smart people saying smart things <laughs> in documentary form.
2: So 13, 13 is the Ava DuVernay uh, Netflix documentary that's all about the obsession as a culture with mass incar- incarceration and how it affects particularly black and brown people. What is uh, Jorge Ramos's? A documentary about specifically.
0: So Jorge's documentary is sort of he got quite a bit of news. He had been kicked out of a Trump uh, press conference. Oh, yeah. And he had never had something like that happen to him in his entire experience as a journalist. And then he became sort of interested in what he saw in his reporting as a rise of intense xenophobia and and racism in particular. So he, he goes with a white supremacist group and experiences basically they tell him like you're lesser than we are and he also talks to this one uh he talks to a classroom with a bunch of kids who are afraid that their parents are going to get deported he talks to um a Mexican man who was beat up and called a wetback wow. so it's like all of these yeah it's really intense but i think that it's really interesting to see a synthesis of so many of the topics that have been brought up so quickly i mean I, I don't know how long Ava DuVernay worked on 13, but it feels like all of these documentaries are being done in such a response to sort of rhetoric that's happening and being done so well and so re- and they're so relevant. So I feel like I've learned a lot uh, in the past week being able to watch them.
2: Oh, huh, yeah. I I want to check that out for sure. Yeah. And what is your Delta?
0: So I saw Pitch Perfect 2 for the first time this weekend.
2: I know exactly where this is going. Yes, go on.
0: (laughs) Why is that movie so racist? (laughs) Yeah, that was my question, too, when I first saw it. It was such a bummer. Like, it was just like, I really liked Pitch Perfect 1. I was a big fan. Same, yeah. And I was, you know, feeling kind of down. And I was like, oh, this will be a fun pick-me-up movie. And then there was, like, the one Latina character, all of her lines are about how she's been kidnapped is illegal? Like, it's just, like, the worst stereotype of Latinos I've seen in a really long time. I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's turn to the plus. Let's
2: <laughs> give me something good. Okay. So <clears throat> my plus is an episode from the newest season of Black Mirror. And mm. I don't want to give away too much because part of Black Mirror and, and what that show Um, is about and this is a series that's sort of it's been described as a twilight zone type show for the modern day and it started off as a british tv show um and it's it's an anthology series so every episode has different casts different characters and each one is about in some way how technology um is informing our lives and it's really, really dark and bleak and sad. Uh, but there's one episode, and so there, there's a new season, season three, and it's premiered on Netflix. And so far I'm a little eh on it. I've watched the first four episodes, uh, but the fourth episode is called San Junipero. And I just want to say, without giving too much away about it, it's about a a romance and a, and a making of a connection between a, um, a two women. And Gugu Mbatha-Raw, I think I pronounced Oh my god, that I love her. Yes, she is one of the characters. And she, I, she she's just great in everything. She was uh, the star of the movie Belle, which is a really That's good like movie. That's like one of my favorite movies. Yeah. That movie is so beautiful. So beautiful. Also Beyond the Lights, uh, alongside Nate Parker from like two years ago. I think it was 2014. And she's just wonderful in it and it's about the relationship but of course there's a twist and it deals a lot with like the idea the concept of connections and and feeling and also like wrestling with death and yeah I just I, I encourage everyone to seek it out it is probably one of the most emotional hour Uh, it's an hour long episode and it feels like a a movie in like an hour like there's just it, it goes through so many emotions and so many reveals and unveilings and does so like slowly but deliberately and beautifully and there's there's also like a lot of right um there's a lot of interp- different interpretations of the way it ends, and which I also find fascinating. Uh, so I think it's just a really nice representation of romance between uh, – like a love between women and one of them being a woman of color. It's just really sweet. So that is my okay, – I have to
0: check it out. Yeah, that, that is my amazing. plus.
2: For my Delta, <clears throat> Drake – <laughs> you screwed. You screwed up. Uh, <laughs> I look. I enjoy Drake. I find him funny, uh, silly sometimes. I think he's talented. But he, as of his recording, just released a bunch of songs. One of which is a diss track, uh, very specifically to Kid Cudi. And Kid Cudi is a rapper. He was sort of a protege of sorts of Kanye's several years ago. And, you know, recently he got into a little bit of a beef with uh, Kanye and Drake and called them out on Twitter and, you know, said some things that, you know, it it seemed the way it was just like a normal sort of diss that we see all the time, like a Meek Mill Drake sort of back and forth. But then a few weeks later, Kid Cudi writes this really profound and open, like very candid Uh, Facebook message about how he's checked himself into rehab because he realizes he's suffering from severe depression and he needs to get help. And he, you know, he recognizes that he um, needed to seek help elsewhere. And so it, it launched into this conversation about, you know, black culture and the way in which we don't always seek mental health when we should and how these things are not set up for us. There's there's this perception that men have to just deal with it and not address their feelings and their emotions. And I thought it was really, like, a great moment, and it's good to see him doing that. And then Drake comes along and releases a diss track that apparently he wrote before. He might have written before Kid Cudi announced this, but he still decided to drop the track after it's right. clear that Kid Cudi is in rehab. And... That's just not cool, yeah. and thankfully people are calling him out on this uh, because, and I, he even specifically like calls him crazy, uh, or or right. says the word crazy, and that's just not okay. And you know, we Drake just we need to do better. We need to do better about addressing mental mental health and 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 you know, especially within the Black community and people of color when these things are not always talked about. So that is my delta. <laughs> well, Antonia, it was. Awesome, as usual, to have you on. I'm so glad we got to talk about Jane the Virgin. Thanks for uh,
0: having me. Yeah.
2: And now my interview with filmmaker Barry Jenkins. So for a bit of background, Jenkins is definitely having a moment. Since premiering at the Telluride Film Festival a couple of months ago, Moonlight has been garnering some serious award season buzz. And just last week, A.O. Scott wrote a glowing review in the New York Times titled is this the year's best movie? Moonlight's a really difficult movie to describe, but for the basics, it's a story in three acts of a young boy growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood in Miami, and the same character is played by three different actors in each stage of his life. There's Little, played by Alex Hibbert, who at nine is neglected by his drug-addicted mother, bullied by other kids for being different, and is taken in by a kindly local drug dealer played by Mahershala Ali, and his warm, doting girlfriend, Teresa, played by Janelle Monet. As a teenager, Chiron, who is now played by Ashton Sanders, is still bullied and confronting his own sexuality within a hypermasculine environment, which has dire consequences for Chiron. And in the final act, as a young adult going by the name Black, played by Trevante Rhodes, we see the aftermath of those consequences and how they've affected him physically and emotionally. So a heads up before we dive in, we recorded this interview in the New York offices of A24, the film's production company, which means you'll occasionally hear the outside bustle of NYC throughout the interview. So we apologize for those interruptions. Also, while it's difficult to truly spoil this movie, we do discuss some moments in depth here. So if you like to go into movies knowing as little as possible, perhaps you might want to circle back around to this chat after you've seen the film. So here's my interview with Barry which opened with how he first came in contact with Terrell Alvin McCraney's unproduced play In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, which inspired Barry's screenplay.
1: Terrell and I grew up blocks from one another, and um, you know we're both from Miami. There's this group called the Borscht Film Festival, uh, and Terrell went to high school with those kids. And so they kind of knew a lot of the things he had been working on. And uh, and they you know they reached out to him asking if he had anything uh, that was set in Miami, and uh, and when they read it they they thought of me and so they sent it uh, sent it my way, uh, and when I read it I was I was struck at first by you know how uh, how how like grounded in Miami it was, and sort of grounded in the neighborhood that Terrell and I grew up in, uh, and I'd never seen anybody like try to tell that story, so you know I, I think I was pulled in because uh, it was such an accurate portrayal. Of, of, of Liberty City, you know, this, this neighborhood that he and I grew up in.
2: What, could you describe a little bit what Liberty City is like for those who either haven't seen the movie yet or yeah, just it's aren't like, familiar?
1: Yeah, I guess the, the the quick version is it's sort of like uh, the south side of Chicago or like south-central of L.A., you know. It's just, you know, an inner-city uh, sort of enclave that uh, that is, I won't want say majority, that when I was growing up was pretty much like 99.999%. Uh, Black folks, Mm -hmm. uh, very working class.
2: And um, there are three acts within the film. Uh, And just for the purposes of listeners, we have uh, Little, Chiron, Mm -hmm. and Black, and they're all the same character. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see them throughout their different lives. What sort of what made you want to, was that the way the original play was written? And then how did you sort of decide what to mm-hmm. leave out? And, and and because there's, you see different parts of their lives, but then there's a lot that happens, transpires between each mm-hmm. act that we don't see, but we mm-hmm. learn about afterwards. Yeah,
1: the, the play was, uh, was non-linear, so the structure was very different. It mm-hmm. kind of jumped back and forth through time. Uh, and Terrell was trying to do a day in the life of all three characters. So... It's like you would see Little wake up, Chiron wake up, Black wake up, and then Chiron would go to school, Little would go to school, Black would go to the corner, and it just progressed with the day like that. So you know, one of my first decisions uh, in talking with Terrell was to change the structure of it mm. and tell it as these three stories uh, in turn, because I thought it would be not, not only more cinematic, but I thought the audience would be able to follow the trajectory of the character uh, better that way than trying to do the math of, okay, now we're back at lunch with the second character and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it was one of the very first decisions uh, I made. And, and I was glad Terrell agreed to it because I, I think it sort of opened up a lot of possibilities for us uh, visually and thematically.
2: Mm. And in terms of casting the actors uh, for Little Chiron and Black and then also the three Kevins, Kevin is his sort of his, his mm-hmm. friend throughout the the, mm-hmm. the story. How did you decide to were you like how integral was your um, perspective into deciding who you were going to cast and working with the casting director. And did you let them see each other's performances?
1: Uh, no, you know, I had this this idea really early on that I wanted the guy to. I wanted Sharon in particular because I think everything we did with Sharon we just followed the same path with Kevin. You know, but it was all dictated by the main character. Uh, I knew that I wanted uh, different people to to play this guy um, because I feel like so much time passes. Uh, between each chapter that he's become like a different person you know Mm -hmm. and so I thought we will cast different people uh to play the same person and uh and and it wasn't that I was looking for uh these people who, who looked alike you know I was looking for sort of like the same feeling you know I wanted it to I wanted him to be a different a different person but the soul of him was still continuing on uh through the story And so our casting director, Yessi Ramirez, did a great job of sort of like really digging into that. And the cool thing with Yessi is she's born and raised in Miami. So she like innately knew what it was we were looking for. Um, And once we sort of went down uh, that path, you know, things started to reveal themselves to us um, about the film and the story. um, And the process of casting started to really inform, I think, the sort of tone of of the film Mm. and of each story. Um, yeah, it was a really, really, really nice, nice process.
2: I definitely think that comes across because as I was watching it with Sharon, especially I felt like, and, and little and black Mm -hmm. watching them, they each had a very different way of carrying themselves. Um, and obviously when you, when you, as a, from child to adulthood, you change and you evolve, Mm -hmm. but I do agree. I can, I can sense I can feel that there is a similar, there is a through line throughout all of them and I just think the casting was really, it, it worked really well to make them seem like one person but yeah. also very different. Very different, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think the the world uh, starts to, the pressure starts to accumulate on the character and and I think, you know, little should walk differently than Chiron because he's experienced less, you know, and, you know, once Travante shows up as black, you know, it's, it's a reaction to all that weight that they've been carrying. So, so yeah, and, and. And, you know, uh, I never allowed them to meet, to, to go back to your previous question, mm. and I didn't allow them to watch um, any footage, you know, of the other actors who played them. Um, you know, w- w- the one thing I did d- I did do, you know, I wasn't fully method where there's a version of this where they only got the version of the script that they were in, but I thought that, you know, that wasn't fair, that mm. they should know uh, what the rest of the story um, entailed. And And, you know, when you think about it, the only you know, little, there's nothing for him to see about Sharon or, or Black, because they come after. Right. Um, and so Trevante was the only one who really, you know, sort of had any reason to want to see footage of the other actors, because, you know, he was playing the character who came after them. And he really, he was, like, adamant about trying to, to, to see footage or to meet um, Ashton and Alex, but, you know, I, I didn't want that, because them mimicking each other wasn't the point, you know? Yeah. Because to me, it was about how the world is changing uh, th- these young men.
2: Hmm. And Terrell, the um, the author of the unproduced version of this, mm-hmm. he is gay, but mm-hmm. you are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious as to, well, first, my question would be, was there any stage within the uh, Sharon black little character that you identified most with? Mm-hmm. Or was there sort of? Throughout the entire process, you you found a little bit of yourself in each. Or? No, no,
1: I identify with the character pretty much uh, the whole way. You mm-hmm. know, I think uh, you know Cheryl's sexuality is, is is one aspect of his identity, but I think the movie and the character is inherently uh, intersectional. You know, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot lot of other things going on with the character that I could could uh, identify with. You know, at a very first person uh, level, first person perspective. So. Um, so, no, uh, I think, you know, and, and the interesting thing about the, 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 the film is that, you know, the movie is it's definitely more autobiographical for Terrell than it is for me. I mean, it's still fiction, but it's more autobiographical for him. And yet there's all these, these scenes in between these autobiographical um, sort of points for Terrell where there are things that are autobiographical for me, but they both fit uh, the character, so I identify very well with uh, with all three of the Chiron's and probably identify the most uh, with Black, uh, mm. if, uh, if anything, um, because I, I can relate to uh, his struggle to sort of love himself um, as a response to the fact that he feels his mom does not love him. So, so yeah, it was. Uh, I think the reason why people feel like the movie is so personal. Um, is because I, I saw so much of myself uh, at each stage of, of, of the film. Mm.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of your identifying with black and, mm-hmm. and your relationship with your mother? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I think, one, Naomi Harris does a great job of, uh, great. of bringing uh, Paula to life. And it's interesting because you're essentially watching this highly trained uh, actress uh, perform this composite of My Mom and Terrell's Mom's.
2: Give me that damn money Sharon. Give me the damn money. Give
1: me the damn money. I don't have no money. Mama, come, come on. Give me the damn money. Give Mama, it. come on. All right,
2: all right, all right, money. all right. Give me the damn money. Here, man Yes. That is what that guy. Oh, I know that bitch like a hook-and-nowhere trick. You my child, okay? And tell that bitch she better not forget it. Go on to school. Ain't you late?
1: It's definitely the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in making a film was directing Naomi through those scenes. Um, uh, but I think, uh, you know, for me, there was a point in my life where, where I felt like maybe I was unworthy uh, of love uh, because of some of the, the things um, or the way I grew up and sort of the, the, the pain uh, that my mom and I went through. And I think the character uh, Black in the third story is definitely dealing with that you know you know he's I think he has reached a point where he has accepted that he is unworthy of love and so he stopped stopped seeking it and I think a lot of people can can relate to that you know I have a lot of friends you know who you know once we got into our 30s you know you know we started to think you know as everybody else you know huddled up and you know got wifed up and we were like well are we just damaged you know um and when we all looked back you know not a lot of us but some of us you know we saw all these things in our past that we hadn't reconciled um, and 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 it just illuminated all these these things of how we were then behaving um, in the world and, and in our relationships.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like yes, part of it is the fact that it is a about a black young black kid trying mm-hmm. to figure out his sexuality, but it mm-hmm. is also just a, it's a romantic story, mm-hmm. and it's romantic in the sense of his relationship with Kevin, and mm-hmm. also. This connection he needs to feel to his mother and just the feeling of being loved mm-hmm. and I, I've been thinking a lot about it lately, especially you've actually you've either collaborated with Solange or you were supposed to collaborate we're supposed with, to, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. so I've been thinking about this with like a seat at the table. She has a quote with Which Master I love so great, oh right? my
1: god I've mm-hmm.
2: nonstop. For the last few weeks, I,
1: I had to write a letter for for Landmark Theaters, mm. you know, for the release of this, and I actually quoted "Cracks in the Sky" uh, so, in, in the letter.
2: It's so good. But there's a moment on when Master P, who is throughout the album, mm-hmm. she's interviewing him, and he says like, "Black folks just have to figure it out for themselves." You no, know, we
1: putting people on a pedestal that just a human like us. You know, I mean, they got more drugs in the rich neighborhoods than they got in the hood. A lot of their kids dying from overdose and things like that. Think about it. Black kids have to figure it out. We don't have rehabs to go to. <laughs> you gotta rehab yourself. But for us, you can't pull a plug on us.
2: I feel like this movie mm-hmm. is sort of a advocate in a way. At least I read it as an advocate of a way of like we need more support systems and, mm-hmm. and we need um and, and not just systematic, you mm-hmm. know, therapy obviously, but also mm-hmm. we just need things like amongst each other to encourage.
1: Yeah. You you, you know, one one of the things that that, that people have been picking up on that I really like in the film is the sort of duality between Naomi uh, and Janelle. Because, you know, I remember growing up there were sometimes where the lights weren't on. There was no food in the house, and you know, and nobody was there. Mm. But we always knew we can go to like Miss Hattie' house, or we can go to Aunt, you know, Aunt Chrissy' house. You know, right. there was always somewhere to go. Yeah. you know, there was there was an, an informal network, an informal support system, uh, and these were people who also were struggling. You know, mm. but but there was always somewhere uh, to go. So I know exactly what you mean. Um, you know, and and then I think of the character Juan and how, you know, Juan is sort of like this amazing support system that just seems to spring forth. Like, like, out of the asphalt. Yeah. Um, but he can't be there, the, you know, all the way. You know, somebody... There, there have been some people I've talked to after the film, and they're really despondent. They're like, what happened to Juan? You know, why is Juan not in the rest of the movie?
2: What did happen to Juan, by the way? Is what, it, so, like, purposely what, ambiguous? It, it's purposely ambiguous,
1: but it's not ambiguous. You know, yeah. Juan is a drug dealer. Yeah. You know, there's a shelf life on that, you know? Right. And there's even a scene where, where Juan tells somebody there's a shelf life on that. Uh, you know, it didn't make right. the film uh, where he's driving this guy around. Um, and the guy's trying to trying to like come in and, and like get on the corner, and he's telling them there's a shelf life on this, you know, um, and and because there's a shelf life on it, you know, for that sort of surrogate to rise up, you know, mm. I think it's beautiful, but I think you know the reality of it is, you know, at some point, Juan's gonna get got. And I wanted the audience to feel the same thing that a kid like Sharon, a lot of these kids in these neighborhoods feel, uh, when these men who do earn their living in illicit ways, but they still have enough sort of like space and enough enough multitudes within them to also go, oh, but, you know, don't do that. Go to school. You know, I'm, I'm going to help this kid out. Right. They get snatched out, you know, and, and that support system, that informal support system then gets pulled away. And I like to think that maybe if the character, of Juan was around, you know, for the first the whole first 20 years of Chiron's life, maybe things would have turned out differently, but, you know, there's no way he could be because, you know, at the end of the day, he's a drug dealer, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to talk a little bit more about, so when I was watching the movie, I had a hard time figuring out what time period it was. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, it, it starts off with, you start off With the same uh, actual sample or Mm -hmm. song as Kendrick does, which is from 1973. Yes, from 1973, which is why I was Mm -hmm. like, "Hmm, so is this the 70s?" Mm Because then Juan, I always pronounce his name Mahershala. Mahershala Ali. Mm -hmm. His character, we see him, and he's driving like a Cadillac. So it's like, Mm -hmm. or a you know, an old yeah. But come on, that could be
1: 1964, (laughs) 1994, 2004, 2014. Right, exactly. Which
2: is why I was like, Mm -hmm. "Huh? Like, I wonder when this is." And then. I don't see any sort of technological cues. There's no mm-hmm. like cell phones. There's no texting. And then I realized when you know, classic man played in the last third. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So now we're in the present. So mm-hmm. I could I was able to do the math. But like,
1: eh, we so we might be. We might be. We might not be. Maybe not. You know, I didn't want to put a, a time stamp on the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, to me it wasn't about that so much, as it was about just the progression yeah. of the main character. You know, and you know if you identify with him more, if it's eighty eight totally fine. Mm-hmm. If you came of age and then in 98, you know, totally fine. You know, it's not that big a deal. We didn't want to put that finer point on it, you know, um, partly, uh, because I think when you, you know, if we rooted it in say 1982, you know, that says something very specific about Juan as a drug dealer, you know, and right. Paula as a crack addict, you know? Um, but I didn't want to sort of, uh, distinguish and root it to a certain place. Cause I think, the, the contextualization that would happen uh, because of that is irrelevant to the story yeah. and, irrev- and, and irrelevant to what the characters are going through. Because if I was going to make a movie that was a commentary on crack cocaine in the 1980s, that would be a very different film uh, than the one we made. So. Right. Th- there is one date in the film. Um, it's blink and you'll miss it. I'll even give a... We'll consider this an Easter egg for Aisha Harris. Um, (laughs) Thank you. It's it's in the second story. Mm. There's one time where you very clearly see a timestamp, But even that doesn't say a lot because I think the the time between films is not uniform. Mm. You know, I think a lot less time passes between story one and story two than passes between story two and story three. Mm. So it's not like eight years later and then eight years later, you know? It's not like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, I guess I would like to sort of Go back to Naomi Harris's character mm-hmm. as the mother because she said, you know, I it was it was difficult for me at first to not judge this character mm-hmm. and to, you know, to because she is, you know, a, a black like there's so much weight put on being mm-hmm. a black playing a black mother mm-hmm. and then you think of movies like Precious and mm-hmm. all these other things mm-hmm. and so she's coming in at it from a different space because mm-hmm. I'm 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 assuming I don't know but it seems like she. Never really had that experience growing up, or mm-hmm. maybe knew people like that, but you did. So, how did you guys discuss? Did she tell you that, or was that something you just She asked? did. No, no,
1: she did. She did, yeah. and and she expressed her uh, her hesitation um, uh, and her skepticism right away. Mm-hmm. You know, both not necessarily of the character, but of her ability to play the character. You know, somewhat her uh, of the character too, because you know it's really easy for that character to, to be just a negative right. uh, image, to be a stereotype. And, and even I, in, in writing the piece, you know, I was conflicted because there is a version of Sharon's story that doesn't have the character in it, you know? Mm. There is. There just is, you know? I think uh, there are black kids who come from middle-class families that struggle with their sexual identity also, you know, right. who have a great support system. You know, Pariah is a film just like that, you oh, know, and a great, great film movie. like that. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like we don't see, or I hadn't seen stories where, you know, uh, Uh, queer kids of color who were from, you know, sort of disadvantaged or depressed backgrounds that their story uh, hadn't been told. Especially not in Miami. Especially not in Miami, which is the other part of it. You know, uh, for a long time, I wasn't comfortable talking about uh, that part of my my, my history. And I even remember when the first Oscar so white or the second Oscar so white, I can't remember which one, (laughs) when that happened, you know, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm kind of active on Twitter Mm -hmm. and, you know, but I'm more of a lurker. Uh, I, I guess I can't lurk now. Uh, <laughs> pe- people know who I am, but uh, but uh, there was this, this conversation going on about about all the the black actors who've won Academy Awards and the roles they played them for, you know. Yeah. And yeah. And, and they're like, "Oh, we only play mates and, and crackheads and blah blah blah." And then part of me was like, "Well, but I'm the child of a crackhead, you know, and I'm proud of that. I'm still here, you mm-hmm. know, and I love my mom. So, you know, should I should I be ashamed of telling my story? You know." That's my story. Right. You know, and then and then once Terrell and I linked up, and here are two of us, and this is our story, you know, and we can't be alone. And so, you know, I felt like, not that, not that I was being uh, censored or shunned, but I did feel like there was inherently some level of shame hmm. um, uh, associated with a character like this. Uh, and so it was difficult. It, it was of, of everything in this film, and people always ask, oh, how'd you feel as a straight guy making a movie about a gay character? fine how did i feel about a guy who's making a movie about a single mom who's a crackhead that i was scared Mm. i mean it was scary but you know part of that's because it was so personal and real uh to me um you know part of it was the fact that you know just like naomi said you know it's complicated you know we are you know we are carrying these images out into the world you know and we can't control how people contextualize those images no matter how uh, virtuous our, our aspirations are and our intentions are um, but you know we had to do it because it's the truth of uh, of my experience and Terrell's experience, and and we can't be alone. I'm sure there are a lot of people our age, you know, who came of age in the '80s who went through these things with, with their parents. So,
2: right. I mean, it seems like more of the conversation mm-hmm. to be had is like, how do we get just more represent more mm-hmm. um, different kinds of representation?
1: Exactly because because yeah. if, if if you had if you had the Cosby, I'm talking about the Cosby Show, mm-hmm. when you got Doctor Hus- Huxtable. But then you got my character Paula, you know, and then you got uh, uh being Mary Jane everything you know, in between but then you got yeah. also Atlanta, you know, exact Queen if we could if we had the whole spectrum, then mm-hmm. I think when we have these, I think, productive images of people going through hard times and very real things, it wouldn't stick out so much. I mean we wouldn't be so afraid that this is gonna be the image everybody latches onto and they're not gonna have the wherewithal to put it within context. Um but, but to go back to Naomi, um we did talk and, and, and what it eventually came down to was I expressed to Naomi how personal it was uh, for me, and how I didn't think of my mom as and as an addict. You know, I mm-hmm. thought of her as a woman who went through about with addiction. Um, and I think because she saw how personal it was for me and for Terrell, she she felt she could do the work to make it personal for her, mm. so that she could see past her judgment and see into the eyes of the character. And I'm so glad she did because I mean, whew, she is amazing. Yeah. And 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 she goes to places that. Anybody who's lived through that, they will say, okay, you did that. Mm -hmm. Like, she did that. Like, that ain't fake. You know, that comes from somebody who knows what the hell they saw, Mm -hmm. you know, and did a good job translating it. So,
2: It seems like, so the things we see on screen, um, or the things we don't see, we don't see Sharon in jail.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: We don't see Juan die or Mm -hmm. go to jail or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And it seems like you... But what do
1: we see? but what, what, what do we see we, we see, see we see a black man teach a black boy how to swim right. in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean we see a black man cook a dinner for another black man mm-hmm. we see two black men touch each other kiss hold hands you know these are things that we don't see those other things we have seen those like ad infinitum
2: exactly and that's that's the thing that I appreciated about the the film is that it, You are choosing, instead of centering, even though obviously it is a movie that features a lot of sort of tragic moments Mm -hmm. and we see him experiencing these things, Mm -hmm. you choose to center the focus in most of the dramatic way on their everyday lives as Mm -hmm. opposed to like the the struggle so much.
1: Yeah, you know, it was was embedded in uh, the structure, you know, once we decided to sort of pull it apart and just tell these I think these three big beats as opposed to trying to tell a coming-of-age story in like 50 small beats right I think once we we set ourselves up to do that we open the door to you know creating the space you know and actually like observing you know and watching all these things you know I love that you know we open with you know a pretty rigorous uh scene of trapping you know um and yet at the very end of it what happens you know Ali, asks this guy, "How's your mom doing?" You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. the only thing he says in the scene. You know, because yeah. again, I think those conversations happen even when the, even within the the drug trade. You know, you know right. people still care for one another. So you're right. We and again, it wasn't an overt attempt to uh, counter stereotypes, you know, or to show the other side of things. Uh, we just wanted to sort of get it right, you know, because if you're from within the community, you know these these things happen even within some of the darker aspects. Yeah.
2: It's Aisha interjecting here, and in a second, you're going to hear Barry refer to BAM. Now, BAM stands for the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and earlier that week when we recorded this conversation, there had been a screening which my producer, Berylin, who was also in the room, had attended. So in a second, you're going to hear Barry turn to her and ask her about her experiences and what the reactions were like at that screening. That scene where he's cooking where Kevin, in mm-hmm. the last third when mm-hmm. he's cooking for, uh, for Black yeah, that's something we've never seen,
1: and, and it's. Where, where did you Where did you watch the film? I'm curious.
2: I saw it in a like a, a like a, a screening
1: room. because mm-hmm. well, because you you were at BAM, right? Mm-hmm. So I heard people laughed during the cooking scene at well, BAM. No, that, that's what I was asking. So so well, so let's talk about that. What what what? Because I, I don't understand that. It's not meant to be. I mean, people want to laugh; they can laugh wherever they want, but. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, please, because because so, I'll say I I I I, tr- I can't watch the film, you know. It's just and I've watched it like once with a public audience. I'm um, I'm probably gonna sneak into a theater at some point, you yeah. know, if it's in the neighborhood just to see what what that feels like. Yeah. But but yeah, I heard some I, stories about the screen at BAM. Mm-hmm. I think
2: people were recognizing the love
1: because
2: mm. you know. when he was cooking the food and he put the rice in the bowl and we all used those empty Chinese carton Mm -hmm. bowl before Mm -hmm. and he put it on just the sensuality of it and the specificity of it Mm -hmm. I think people were laughing because they were like recognizing themselves and like for me I was just giddy Mm. like just excited by Mm. what was happening on the screen. Mm. Okay, okay. Yeah, I remember I think I was I think I was smiling throughout that whole part I was mm-hmm. just like oh this is it, um, it reminded me in a way of like Ratatouille like the way that uh, but but like but again it's 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 the love and mm-hmm. and you know you've seen black you've seen black women in movies making mm-hmm. being very like soul food and like putting mm-hmm. all their heart into it, um, and I think you've also seen black chefs do that. But like you've never seen like black male chefs mm-hmm. do that. But I don't think I've ever seen that happen—a a black man making it for another mm-hmm.
1: man. And, you know, I do love that one shot where Andre he ducks his head down and he looks out and he smiles. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's sweet. You know, and, and, and it's meant to be sweet. It's this this very intimate moment of nurturing. But you know, see, I should have sat through that screening. I knew I should have. But, <laughs> but I'm gonna sneak in there one of these nights.
2: Yeah, I. I I wasn't at this that BAM screening, but I, I imagine it was, it wasn't,
1: it was did, more did, out of did just people, Did people laugh when he took the fronts out? Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: okay. <laughs> I, I laughed when he took the fronts <laughs> out. Another moment that I thought was really interesting and touching was after, so in the second act with mm-hmm. um, Chiron and Kevin, after they've had their moment on the beach, mm-hmm. and... He, Kevin drives him home, mm-hmm. and there's a moment where they do, like, the I don't even know what the correct term is for it. I mm-hmm. probably should, but, like, you know, the black man, like, it's when you like greet DAP. someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that DAP? I thought DAP was, like, the fist together. Well, but it's, like, to, to me, to it's, me me it's, any, it's
1: any, side of, any side of hand greeting between two black men. I okay, guess it's okay. A DAP. so yeah. yeah, so
2: they do, like, a DAP, but then mm-hmm. it, like, slowly lingers away. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sort of, I don't know why that moment stuck out to me, but it felt, it, it sort of
1: balanced out and seemed to be... Girlfriend. you. yeah (laughs) (laughs) well because we shot that at 48 frames per second so so it's meant to linger okay but but, but it's not it's not obvious yeah I think it's because for me it's the last moment of pure sort of uh pure intimacy between them you know until much 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 deeper uh and the story and I think they both realize it you know Mm -hmm. and so we wanted to just really settle in in that moment it's a quick moment I mean we're talking about three seconds probably
2: yeah it was very quick but I also just read it as like they had this moment that some people would consider um, not manly. They've mm-hmm. they've hooked up, mm-hmm. um, but then they do this thing that you know you usually see you know the very hyper masculine men doing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it just felt like oh like they can they can be both like yeah. they can they can they can easily mm-hmm. it, it's not one or the other.
1: Well, and what I love is you know I'm glad you mentioned it because my friend uh, Allison Davis who works at. Works at a uh, uh, Mokada. Um, I think she still works at Mokada. But anyway, she they did this whole. Some artists came through with this whole like, thing, a show that was just about dap, and he yeah, had <laughs> like it was like eighty different ways uh, of dap, you know. And uh, in this film, in each story, those guys give each other dap, but it means something different every time. Every time they do, mm-hmm. you know, because I love in the in the diner scene when Andre first comes around the corner. They give each other that, but then you see Trevante's hand on his back, and it just mm-hmm. again it just lingers just for a little bit, yeah, just for a little bit. It's to me, it's all about this this exchange of intimacy, you know, and and and, again, and then all the different permutations of masculinity, you know, mm-hmm. and how it's expressed, how it's shared.
2: So I have to bring up. I feel like a lot of people are discovering you now, and I only discovered Mouse Medicine for Melancholy, your debut feature earlier this year and we myself and my co-worker Dan Koyce put I'm so happy we did we put it on, list. Put put it it on, on our list. list of the 50 put it on the list uh, yes. 50 best black films how many put, put it on
1: a list yes what? how many <laughs> okay
2: we yeah I I was just to discover this movie for myself for the first time I absolutely really think it's a great movie and it's it's been compared to I think accurately, to sort of the Before Sunrise trilogy, mm-hmm. it is, for listeners, if you haven't seen it, which you definitely should check it out, it's streaming on Netflix now. It is a movie in which two people who have had a one-night stand awaken the next day, and they spend the day walking through San Francisco and mm-hmm. and talking about all different kinds of things, uh, you know, gentrification, interracial dating. And, I mean, the movie came out in 2008, so that was a long time from now. Mm-hmm. How have you as a filmmaker, because I see similarities, but I also feel like there's a lot, There's a you're, you're a very different mm-hmm. filmmaker than what I see I see in Medicine for Melancholy. How mm-hmm. have you changed since then as a person and as a filmmaker? So One, between I'm,
1: two? I'm, I'm older. I'm well, well, a lot older. Yes. I was, <laughs> I'm way deep into my 30s now, and mm-hmm. I wasn't even 30 when I made that. Yeah. Um, but also too, you know, I, I've I've been watching a lot of things, writing a lot of things. You know, I've made I think five shorts uh, in the in the time between that film and this film. Yeah. Uh, but he, but I think just as importantly, you know, all my friends continue to make work and really really good work. You know, Ryan and Ava, you know, Terrence and Justin, um, you know, Khalil. Just everybody was out there, just kind of pushing themselves. You know, D and Tina and uh, and and I was never felt like I was outside of that group. I was never mm. ostracized. You know, we all kept in touch and. And, and people were like, what are you working on, bro? You got to do something. But but they were always inclusive, you know? And I think, uh, you know, because the, the quality of the work they were doing just rocketed. You know, uh-huh. everybody just got better and better. You know, I felt like by, not by association, but but just by, by, by loving the things they were doing and, and paying attention and staying connected, um, that despite not making anything, I think my voice was growing as well uh, as a filmmaker. So, you know, I have to thank, you know, just this amazing group of, uh, of black storytellers right now uh, that I'm very proud to be to be a part of.
2: I have to say, I love like the support that I just see from all the black filmmakers amongst
1: each the, other. The, the first rough cut screening of yeah. this, it was like 36 hours. We're like, we got to make a list. And I just moved to LA. I was like, oh, hell can I get to come watch this film? And Literally within 24 hours, I got uh, Khalil Joseph showed up, Justin Simeon, uh, Terrence Nance to hear Rada Blank. I mean, it was like uh, uh, Na'ima Na- 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 Ramos Chapman. I mean, it was like everybody was just like, "You got a new movie? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna go to this interview. I'm gonna come and watch and give you notes. You know? Aww, yeah. But yeah. It's a real good time right now.
2: That's so great. And the the question that I ask all my guests on the show mm-hmm. is, when is the last time you felt? Represented on screen and not by your own hand.
1: Total cheat because I, uh, I, in between Toronto and New York Film Festival I ran back to LA to direct an episode of Dear White People uh, for, oh. Just, for Justin. Oh, cool. Uh, the Netflix series and I was able to sort of hang around as Tina was directing her episode and the work they're doing holy shit. I mean, I've never felt more represented than I did being on that set. I mean, it is just amazing, you know, and it's Justin, Stephanie Elaine, and Yvette Bowser, you know, there's three, three black folks, you know, mm-hmm. who, are, who are just over there just creating this work in their image, um, you know, without any compromise, and so, and it felt really, even though I should have been asleep, um, <laughs> it just felt extremely fulfilling, you know, to again, uh, be able to see somebody just creating, you know, with no filter, so
2: seems like now is a really great time to be a black filmmaker. It's
1: not too bad. Yeah. It's not too bad. Yeah.
2: yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan, and I'm just really happy that people are discovering this movie and hope people go out and check it out.
1: As do I. Much thanks for having me. Thank you.
2: That's all for today, folks. It was really, truly an honor to chat with Barry, and if you haven't seen it yet, definitely, absolutely go see Moonlight. It continues to expand to a few more cities this weekend, including Atlanta, Chicago, Miami, and D.C., and next week it opens wide. And as Forbes points out, when it opened in limited release over the weekend, it earned the biggest box office per theater average of 2016. Also, you should definitely check out Medicine for Melancholy. It's currently streaming on Netflix. You can find links to the things we touched on in the show notes. And as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. Please, please, please keep rating us on iTunes. We really, really appreciate your support. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Vera Lynn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.